well, hey, this is Eric. I'm one of the ministers at Regency. I just wanted to thank you for checking out this message. We're praying that God uses this message to draw your heart closer to Him. If you're ever in the Mobile area, we want to invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 10 a.m. If you'd like to find out more information about Regency or to check out some other resources, visit our website at regencycc.org. So earlier this week, I, uh, I went to Google because I was looking up the most famous paintings in the world. And as I was typing into Google, I typed in the words, most famous. And I just happened to look down to see what appeared. And here's a picture of what popped up, what Google thought I was looking for. I was a little disturbed by number two. I don't know why Google would think I'm looking for the world's most famous serial killers. I was very intrigued by the world's most famous TikTokers. But probably the most surprising was towards the bottom, the most famous celebrations in Ecuador. Now, if you know anything about that, come talk to me. I decided not to plunge down that rabbit hole, but my curiosity is definitely piqued as to why that's such a popular item on Google. I was looking for item number four. I wanted the world's most famous painting. So I found an article that listed the top five most famous paintings of all time. Here's number one. It's the Mona Lisa. You probably recognize the Mona Lisa. That's a pretty much a classic. Here's number two, Girl with a Pearl Earring by Johannes Vermeer. I'm not very cultured, apparently, because I had never heard of this one before, and it's the number two one. Number three, I can't show you. It was very much inappropriate. We're going to skip to number four. Number four was The Starry Night by Vincent Van Gogh. And then number five was called Arrangement in Gray and Black, number one, by James Abbott McNeil Whistler. I personally was looking for number two, but number one made the cut. So I had a question. What makes a work of art a masterpiece? That's a good question, right? How, how did these paintings become such masterpieces? Well, I went to the other place on the Internet, aside from Google, that is the most authoritative of any search site, and that was Wikipedia. And here's what Wikipedia said. In modern use, a masterpiece is a creation in any area of the arts that has been given much critical praise, especially one that is considered the greatest work of a person's career or to a work of outstanding creativity, skill, profundity, or workmanship. That's a masterpiece. Let me ask you this. Do you feel like a masterpiece? When you look at your life, when you look in the mirror, do you feel like a masterpiece? I know many times I don't. I think, man, I, I'm so messed up. There's sin in my life. It's dysfunctional. There's crazy stuff going on. God, there's no way that I can be a masterpiece. Maybe you feel that way as well. Let me tell you what. You are a masterpiece. And you should feel like one because that's what God said about you. You are a masterpiece. So today we're continuing our series in the book of Ephesians called Created for Good. And we're going to look at chapter 2, the first 10 verses. And I believe Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 might be one of the most important passages of Scripture for a follower of Jesus. Because in that text, it's all about your identity. And your identity impacts everything about you. It impacts your outlook on life. It impacts your decisions. It impacts your goals in life. 
Ephesians 2 is our identity as believers. It's going to tell us a couple of things. It's going to tell us who we were before Jesus. It's going to tell us who we are in Jesus. And it's going to tell us why we're here on this earth. And I don't know about you, those are all very important questions that I have for my life, that maybe you have as well, that absolutely will impact every day of your life. So let's read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 together. Here's how Paul starts out. Verse 1, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. A really positive verse. Just wait, it'll get there. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, caring about the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and he raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no, no person may boast. For we are his workmanship. His masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I wish we had about, I don't know, six or seven hours, just we're not going to, but I wish we had that long just to drill in, and that would give us a little bit more of a taste of what all Paul is saying, because this passage of Scripture is so dense. We could spend weeks and weeks and weeks talking about all the little lines that Paul packed into these ten verses. Unfortunately, we don't have that long, so we're going to try to get through it as quickly as we can. I'll be a little quicker than six hours, I hope. So here's the first thing that Paul says to us about our identity. He's going to talk about who you were before Jesus. And if you're not in Christ, if you've never given your life to Christ, then this is who you currently are. And let me just tell you, it's shocking to the system because he, he doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't make it pretty, sound prettier than it is. He says, you were dead. You're dead. Now you may be thinking, well, wait a minute, I'm not dead. I'm living. How can I be dead while I'm living. It's one of the great ironies of the Bible. Your life, your spiritual life, is dead outside of Christ. This is my story. This is your story. This is all of our story. Outside of Jesus, we are dead. That's why it makes absolutely no sense when we can be tempted to judge each other. How can one dead person judge another? It makes absolutely no sense. We're all level because outside of Christ, we're all dead and hopeless and I believe he has in his mind going all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and 3 do you remember Genesis 2 and 3 God creates Adam and Eve and he places them in this garden and it's a beautiful garden they've got all these trees they can eat from there's just one tree that he says don't eat from that one tree he called it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil we don't know how long it took them in the story it only takes them a chapter that they're standing right beside it and that the Eve has this conversation we know Adam's with her and she has a conversation with a walking, talking snake. I don't know about you, that would weird me out unless I was living in the Harry Potter movies. Assuming I'm not living out a Harry Potter film, I'd be a little weirded out. I've never had a conversation with a snake. I've certainly never seen a snake walk and talk and reason and relate like this one does. And he says, what God say to you about that tree? Well, don't eat it. The day we eat of it, even touch it, we're going to die. He says, the day you eat of it, you're not going to die. He lied to her. What that serpent did was more than deceive her. 
It was more than, than just Adam and Eve ate the fruit. It was a rejection of God. And not only was it a rejection of God when they ate the fruit, but it was actually a change in their allegiance. God was inviting them to trust His story for their life. Live this way and all will be good. I'm inviting you into life. But Satan, that serpent, that crafty serpent, invited them into death without them knowing it. And when they ate the fruit, they turned their allegiance from Yahweh God to the serpent. Their hearts, their lives, their allegiance, instead of the one who was giving them life, was changed to the one who gave them death. And that is our story, you and I. At some point, my guess is, you have done something very similar. It wasn't with a piece of fruit. It was with a different desire that you knew was in conflict to God's will for your life. You knew that what God was wanting you to do or not wanting you to do was inviting you into life, but you were deceived, and instead what you thought was going to lead you into life, ultimately it just simply led you into death. And what you did in that moment was you changed your allegiance from following God your king to following who Paul says, the prince of the power of the air, the one who would ultimately lead you to death. As a result, you're dead. You're the walking dead. Yeah, you're still living, you're still breathing, but you're dead. You are living death every day. It's the reason we have so many relationship problems. It's the reason we have financial problems. It's the reason we're selfish many times. It's the reason for all of the stuff that's gone wrong in our world on a large scale and even on a personal level. It's because we're dead. Paul says, you're dead. That's it. That, that's who you are outside of Jesus. And man, if the text stopped there, wow, what do we do? There's nothing we can do, but it keeps going. Two most powerful words, maybe in all of the Bible, but God. Isn't that powerful? But God. That's the difference in the whole story. God was not content to leave you dead. He still wants to invite you into life. And so God steps in. And you may be thinking, oh, God could never invite me into life. God could never forgive me. There's all these things that I have done wrong. There's addiction that I'm caught up in. There's all this craziness and dysfunction in my life. But God. If it's not for those two words, you're absolutely right. But God. And when you're tempted to tell yourself, God could never save me, God could never use me, just read Ephesians 2 verse 4, read only the first two words, but God, and then stop, because that's where the story changes. It's because of his amazing grace and mercy. When you look at God, he is, he's kind of a reckless giver. You see, God gives out grace and grace and more grace knowing he's going to be rejected, knowing that it's going to be abused and corrupted. But yet he still shells it out more and you need more grace. He even does it for those of us who have committed our lives to following Jesus, who still struggle with following the way of death. We're still tempted and pulled by those desires in our life and we're basically rejecting God's acts of goodness and following after the ones who is just bringing us more and more death, even as followers of Jesus. And he still shells it out. You need more grace, you need more mercy. He is a reckless giver. It's why it's so hard to explain why would God save us? I don't know. It makes no sense because we don't deserve it. That's why it's called grace. 
but God. On your worst days, remember, but God. It is the most powerful verse in all the Bible. So let's talk a little bit about who we are, who you are. Now remember, every time you read the word you in the letter to the Ephesians, it's plural, who y'all are, so we can be true Southerners, who y'all are. This is us as a group. Don't read this letter as an individual. Read it as a collective group. And here's who God says we are, and it's so powerful. First off, we are made alive together. That's what God does, isn't it? He makes things come to life, and when they are dead, he makes them come back to life. He made life in Genesis chapter 2, and then he makes life again. What the phrase that Paul would use is a new creation, a recreation. He made us alive originally, and he made us alive again. And then he goes on to say that he raised us up together. I, I hear so much of Paul's other letters in this text, because in Romans 6 he talks about how it's through baptism, and he says it also in Colossians 2, that we're raised up to walk in newness of life. We're made alive again through going down into that body of water as someone who is dying to our sin that's being raised to walk in newness of life. He's raising us up together. But the other thing that really sticks out in my mind when I read through this passage is this random scene in Ezekiel 37. In Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel is taken by God to this valley, and as he walks into this valley... It's just full of bones. Bones of people. I don't know about you, I'd be a little weirded out. I've never found myself in a valley of bones. And if I did, I'd probably question the Waze app for sending me there because I didn't get there on my own. And he's in this valley of dry bones. And God asks him, Ezekiel, you think I can bring these dry bones back to life? God, you can... <laughs> I'm summarizing. You can do anything. You can do anything, God. So God says, Ezekiel, prophesy to the bones. That's pretty awesome. I'd love to have been there. I don't know what he said, but it had to, I don't know if he's like, I prophesy to the bones. It had to have been really awesome. You know, we weren't, we weren't given what he actually said. He speaks to the bones, and, and they start rattling together, and they start shaping up and coming back together to form human bodies, and there's tendons and muscles and sinews that are coming back to join these bones back together and flesh is being put around them but there's another problem the problem is is that while they look like a human they're not actually living it's a glimpse of what we're like we're humans but we're not actually living because of our sin and so God says Ezekiel speak to the breath prophesy to the breath to come into these bodies and he does. He prophesies to the breath, which is a really interesting word study. The same word for breath is the same word for spirit. Prophesy to the spirit. Remember that spirit that breathed life into these bodies in Genesis chapter 2. Speak to that spirit to breathe life back into these bodies. And it does. The spirit comes into these bodies and breathes life into them again. In verse 10 it says, The breath came into them. They stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. And then here's what God said in Ezekiel 37 verse 11. This will be on the screen. He said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. God's left us. We've sinned too much. Therefore prophesy to them and say, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. My people, I'm going to open your graves. I'm going to bring you out from them. I'm going to bring you back to the land of Israel, the promised land. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I'm going to put my spirit in you and you'll live. And I will settle you in your own land. And you'll know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. What I truly believe with all of my heart is that we are experiencing this prophecy 
every moment a person goes into the waters of baptism, is buried, and is raised again. What God is doing is he is fulfilling his promise in Ezekiel 37 of raising that person back to life. That dead person goes down into the water, and the Spirit of God rumbles in. And it revives their soul. And they're raised a new person, a new creation. That's exciting. We see it every day. God still keeping his promise. Well, Paul continues, who we are, we are seated together in the heavenlies, in the heavens, with Jesus. That's really weird, if I'm honest with you. How can we be seated together in the heavens while still on this earth? I don't know about you, I don't really feel like I'm seated in heaven many days. It's what Paul's understanding, it's what he's going to get to in chapter 3, of this understanding what we've called the apocalypse. His, it was just a revelation that he had where he realizes that God is bringing heaven and earth together through Jesus. That our space and God's space are intersecting in Jesus. And there's now this middle period where they've overlapped in Jesus that we are living in. We're living in the now but not yet. It's all going to be fulfilled in heaven, but we get a little taste of it now. Just like Ezekiel 37, that body going down into the water and raised up for the Spirit to come into them, we're getting a taste of what the ultimate redemption and God's saving power is going to be like. We're tasting it in small glimpses. And that's what Paul is saying. We're seated in the heavens. You're getting a taste of what is to come here on earth. And isn't that awesome that God allows us in some capacity to experience what is to come here and now. Now, I'll just be honest with you. I have no clue how it happens. I have no clue as to everything that Paul means by it. Here's all I can tell you. God's just waiting on you to get there. Your seat is saved. And you're practically there. In this overlap of the now and not yet, you're practically there. You're seated in the heavens while still being here on the earth. Boy, that, that's a reformational thought. Tell me this, when you get up, to, how many Mondays have you woken up and gone, oh, another Monday, goodness gracious, not another one. Folks, there's no more normal Mondays when you're seated in the heavens. Those days are gone. There are no more normal days when you are seated in the heavens. When you have been made alive, raised together, and seated with Him, there are no more normal days. When you go to work, it's no more a normal job because you have a different calling over your life. You have a different out outlook on your life. When you're driving to work and that person cuts you off and your instinct is to rage on them because they've made you so mad, that's not a big deal. You're seated in the heavens. When your boss comes in and starts chewing you out over something that's not your fault and your instinct is, I'm out of here, I'm done with this. It's okay. Perspective. Seated in the heavens. I've been made alive, raised together and seated with Him. It's all good. When your kids are going nuts, you walk into the house and you're like, oh my word, can we just get till bedtime, please? It's all good. This is what I'm going to tell myself many times this week. Okay, I'm preaching it to me. I'm seated in the heavens. It's all going to be Okay, when life has got you at your worst, when your spirit is crushed and you don't want to go on anymore, you just want God to take you home, you are seated in the heavens. You're going to live it. You're going to survive it. And God's going to use it to His glory. On your best days and on your worst days, remind yourself who you are. You are made alive, you are raised together, and you are seated in the heavens with Jesus. 
That is who we are. What's fascinating about Paul is he says it in the past tense. Really, it's more like the present perfect tense. And I'm not an English teacher, so don't judge me if I get this wrong. You can point it out later quietly, preferably in an email. Don't call me out after the service. But it seems like it's, it's happened and it's happening is the idea behind the phrases. You're made alive, raised together, seated in the heavens. It happened and is still happening. What a beautiful thought. Man, that changes everything. Now, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, I don't deserve that. God, I, I don't deserve for you to do that for me. You are absolutely right. That's why it's called grace. That's why Paul says, it is by grace that you have been saved. It's not your own doing. You weren't some good little person who just happened to be less dead than everybody else. You were dead. And it took the power of God to step into your life, to revive your soul, to make you alive again, to raise you up, and to seat you in the heavens. It has nothing to do with you and everything to do with the power and grace and love of God. That's who you are. Now, let's talk about why you're here. Because we we know who we were outside of Jesus. We know who we are in Jesus. But why are we here? Well, it's because of what Paul says. He says, you are his Poema, that's the term, the Greek term that he used, poema. When you look at that word on the screen, it looks a lot like the word poem. In fact, we get our word poem from it. You are God's poem. Now, I'm not a poet. I don't really enjoy poetry. It's tough because as a student of the Bible, a lot of the Bible is poetry. So I have to make myself enjoy poetry. I wish they'd have just said it in a story instead of putting it in prose. Life would have been a lot simpler if it wasn't in poetry. There's a lot left to understanding and interpretive skills when it comes to poetry. But you are God's poetry. You're his masterpiece. You're the work of art that was his most prized creation. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, do you remember what he said? It is very good. You were good when God created you. Don't forget that. You were good when God created you. And when he recreates you in Christ, do you know what he says? This is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. It's just basically God saying, you are very good. And he placed you here because you're his poema, his masterpiece, created for good works. That's why you're here. You are created for good. You are created to do good. There are things that God has prepared in advance for you to do, opportunities that he has given to you that only you can do if you will make yourself available to them. God has placed you in your job. God has placed you in your school. God has placed you in your family for reasons for you to do good. He's going to present an opportunity for you to do good. It's very likely at some point this week you're going to cross paths with an individual that you're going to feel like, man, that was purely coincidental. It was not. God prepared it in advance for it to happen so that you could do good. The question is, will you do good? There are so many times that I feel like I felt like God wanted me to to do good and I didn't for a number of reasons. Partly because it could have been selfish reasons. I was just not being the the neighbor-loving individual I should have been. Part of it because I wasn't ready. I didn't have the opportunity. I didn't have the funds or I didn't have the necessary skills or I didn't have the, the resources that I needed to do that that good deed that God had placed right in front of me. So let's talk about how can you do good this week. Number one, pray for opportunities. Pray that God will 
make those opportunities available to you. He's going to, be careful what you pray for, he's going to, but pray for it, because what that's going to do is that's going to do something within your heart as well. Yes, he's going to lay those opportunities in front of you, but you're going to prepare your heart for those opportunities. Here's number two, plan ahead. If you want to do good, don't wait on it to happen. If one of the ways you want to do good is you want to help people who are uh, struggling to feed themselves, or they're standing on the side of the road holding up a sign, carry cash. I don't know about you, I don't carry much cash anymore. It's like a surprise if Haley's like, hey, do you have any cash? Yeah, I do. Wow, that's awesome. Forgot about that, right? So if that's one of the ways, then you need to start carrying cash, or you need to build time into your trip that maybe you could run through a drive through to help that individual out, or maybe you have a, a little goodie bag that you keep in your car so that you can hand that to them. It's got like a bottle of water and some food and maybe a gift card or something like that. So you can say, here you go. you got to plan ahead. If not, how will you be ready for that opportunity? Because it's going to present itself if you're praying for it. And then number three, pay attention. You've got to pay attention. There are so many needs around you. My guess is tomorrow when you go to work, you go to school, there might be somebody there who's struggling. And if you don't pay attention, you'll never see it. They may not walk up to you and say, hey, I'm really struggling today. Could you help me? Most people aren't going to do that. They're going to tell you without telling you through their body language, through their facial expression, through the words that they're saying that you've got to read between the lines. It's an opportunity for you to do good, to pray with them, to encourage them, to follow up with them, to walk with them in whatever's going on. Pay attention. But also pay attention to your heart. I don't know about you, but there have been times where I have felt pushed to help. Like a heavy burden was placed on my heart. I need to do something. And I hate it when that burden is placed there and I'm not ready. God, I know you want me to help right now and I didn't plan ahead. Forgive me, Father. I should have been ready. I firmly believe that those are nudgings from God. Do good. Say good. Pray for them. Speak up. Ask, can you help? Ask again what's going on. Don't just ask, how are you, and settle for their answer. No, 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 really. How are, I feel like God wants me to talk with you right now. I don't know why. I don't know if there's anything going on. I, I just I feel like something's going on. Pay attention. Pay attention to your heart. Pay, pay attention to the things, the ways that God is nudging you in that direction to be able to do good. That's why you were created. You were created for good. So every morning... When uh, my kids and I, when my girls and I, when we get to school, uh, we will walk to my classroom. And in recent weeks, we don't get there quite as early. We get there right as, you know, right at 7.30 when they're going to go on to class. Sometimes we'll get there a little early and they can play in my classroom. But either doesn't matter either way. When we get there, whenever they get ready to go off to class, many days, and I, I hug them every day and I tell them I love them, and many days I'll say, I love you, be good. I love you. Be good. I want them to be good. I want them to be good for their teachers. I want them to be good friends. I want them to be a good neighbor. I want them to be good to the people that don't like them. I want them to be good in school on their tests and grades and whatever they're trying to do. It's just a message that I constantly tell them. Be good. I tell a bunch of people that. If I've ever told you that, it's not like I think you're bad. It's just, it's just a message. Be good. It's a reminder to me and maybe a reminder to you. Be good. But I think maybe God's message is similar but slightly different. 
What I believe God is telling us through Ephesians 2 is, I love you, do good. I love you, do good. You see, your acts of goodness are not to earn his love. He's given that to you already. You'll never earn his love. God loves you as much on your best days as he loves you on your worst days. His love doesn't change. He loves you, period. So do good. This week, do good in the love of God. Do good because he loves you. He's going to present opportunities to you. So do good. It's why we're here. You were dead, but God made you alive, raised you up, and has seated you in the heavenlies because he's got good things for you to do. Today, if you've been worn down by life, if you need some encouragement from this group of Christians, we'd love to pray with you. If you need to speak privately after the service, we'd love to talk with you and encourage you in whatever way that we can. If you're ready, if you've never followed Jesus and you're ready to no longer be dead, and you want to be alive in Christ, and you see all these blessings and the amazing richness of the grace of God, and you want to experience that and for God to wash away your sins, and you're ready to be baptized into Christ, we're ready to help you with that as well. In whatever ways we can help you, we're going to stand and sing this song.